to my little friend. This is Glenn Peoples, and this is episode 50 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, the Right Reason podcast. 50. I started this podcast in 2008, and I started the blog in 2006. And in 2006 and 2008, I had no real idea whether or not either of these things would last long or at all, really, whether they would be listened to or, or, or well-received or, or anything. I had no idea what I was doing. But this, here we are, episode 50. Wow, I can see a long way from here. <laughs> Look, obviously the reason that I've kept doing this, at least one of the main reasons, I'm somewhat mad, I might have done it anyway. One of the main reasons that I've kept doing this is because you people keep listening to it and you tell me that you want me to keep doing it so I keep doing it. That's one of the reasons. Uh, and so look, thank you, one and all, for those of you who are out there, who, who read the blog, who listen to the podcast, who contact me, um, especially those who contact me, so alone. Uh, thank you. We've made it to episode 50. And since this is episode 50, something of a milestone, a half century of podcast episodes, I wanted to, and I mentioned this last time, I wanted to do a subject that was well, kind of important. I mean, all the subjects are important, of course, but I wanted to do one that was kind of meta-important, that stood above the others and made some important comment about them all. And so I've decided to do one based on a talk that I gave earlier this year in Auckland, and I call it... So what? Thank you, James. So what? Indeed. I mean, so what? I mean, I've, I've spent all this time talking about, about philosophy, about the Bible, about theology, about social issues. And along the way, I've made no secret about the fact that what I'm doing is, well, hopefully making you think, but for my part, offering a perspective on all of these things that I take to be a, a defensible Christian perspective. And more than that, defending a Christian point of view on reality as, well, as true, as credible, as believable, as defensible, and so on. But why do that? You know, what difference does it really make if any of this is true? I mean, lots of people have got their own sets of beliefs. They no doubt gain a lot of fulfillment from them. But so what if this is true? What if this is really, really true? What follows from that? So that's what I'm going to be talking about today. So for the 50th time, let's get started. You know what? Religion, and Christianity in particular, is good for you. It's true. Listen, in a major study called Losing My Religion, researchers found that there was a positive connection between walking away from one's religious faith and 
lacking a higher education. Stated negatively, um, the more educated religious people were in early adulthood, the less likely they were to abandon their faith. Now, is that because smart people know better uh, so they don't walk away, or is it because their religious mindset had a role to play in helping them do better in education? Now, I can't claim to know. But what it tells us is that if there is a causal relationship between having a religious faith that you take seriously and being successful in education, it's a positive one. The same study suggested that religious people are less likely to develop problems with alcohol and drugs. Now, this is confirmed by a different study in the British Journal of Psychiatry called Religion, Spirituality and Mental Health, which found that, number one, practicing religious people are less likely to suffer from problems associated with alcohol and drugs. Agnostics and atheists are the most likely. Practicing religious people are less likely to suffer from eating disorders than other people. People who neither practice any religion nor hold any kind of spiritual beliefs at all, agnostics and atheists, are the least likely to hold a qualification beyond high school. So that's a different study saying the same thing. So yay religion, right? But let's not get carried away. Speaking as a believer, I would have an expectation that being a believer, specifically a Christian as I am, would be good for you, right? Because I think that this is what God made us to do, to relate to him. And so it fulfills our purpose. This is what we're for. This is you know, the way that we're meant to be, so everything's functioning properly. So these findings are consistent with the truth of Christianity and perhaps supportive of it. But the questions being asked in studies like this one have no real resemblance to the question of, what difference does it make if it's true? These studies are only asking what difference it makes if you believe it, or what difference your life circumstances make to whether or not you believe it. The Reverend Jonathan Walton, a minister at Harvard's Memorial Chapel, was reported in the Harvard Gazette as saying something interesting here, and I quote, he says, Belief is revealed by action. Walter said, and this is someone quoting Walter, belief is revealed by action, Walter said, and now they're quoting him, it does not matter if Christianity is true, but rather can we, as those informed by the teachings of Jesus, make it true. Hence, at the end of the day, our faith is not something to be professed as talk is cheap, but something primarily to be done, end quote. Now that's right, and it's wrong. You see, I realize that we're not ideal creatures, but action, to a considerable extent anyway, should be motivated by beliefs. So I don't accept that there's this, there's this disconnect between what we believe and profess to be true and the way that we live our lives. Hopefully those things are in step. But I want to take the opposite line here. It matters what we believe because Christianity makes all the difference in the world if it's true. It might have positive social impacts, and historically, popular myths to the contrary notwithstanding, it has had social impacts that were good. It might make a positive difference in the lives of those who believe it, 
and current research shows quite clearly that it does. But over and above this, if Christianity is true, then that fact really, really matters. So it's important to understand these are not arguments for the truth of Christianity. Instead, they are the consequences of the truth of Christianity. So if Christianity is true, then the following. So number one, other religions are false. You know, that, that sounds like a no-brainer. Of course, you know, if one is true, the others are false. Not all religions believe that, but Christianity does believe that. If Christianity is true, then it follows that other religions are not. Now, you may have seen uh, this bumper sticker on cars, and normally I would put this up on the screen for people to see, but you've seen it. It's, it says, coexist, and the letters are made up of religious symbols from a bunch of religions around the world. So in there you've got, well, you've got the, um, the yin-yang symbol of Taoism. You've got uh, a, an I dotted with a pentagram. Uh, the X is, is the Star of David. You've got what looks like a feminist symbol in there. Uh, you've got a, a moon, a crescent moon and a star for Islam. And the T at the end is, is the Christian cross. And, and what this sticker is promoting was probably meant to be no more than peaceful coexistence of different religions and ideological outlooks without bombing and killing each other. So that's, okay, I, I grant that's actually a pretty good thing. But the image also evokes what is called religious pluralism. And this is the idea that different religious outlooks really shouldn't claim to be the truth. Other religious outlooks might be equally valid ways of getting to the truth. Pluralism, pluralism uh, can mean a number of different things, but that's one of them. That's the one that I want to talk about. And so... One of the ways in which pluralism is advocated is, is by way of an analogy where God, or the truth about God, let's just say God, is like an elephant. And you may have heard this, this analogy both used and, and critiqued before, but I'm going to use it now. The idea is that God is like this elephant, and we human beings are limited and finite in our perspective on reality. And so we're like blindfolded people. And one, one fellow with a blindfold walks up to the elephant, reaches out and grabs onto the trunk. And he says, the elephant, well, it says God, the elephant, God is like a, a rope. I don't know if that's actually the way the analogy went, but it works. God is like a rope. Now, God is tall and, and skinny. And someone else grabs hold of the elephant's leg and they said, no, no, God is, is round and squat. And someone grabs the tail and it feels different. And someone you know, touches the elephant on the side and said, no, God is like a wall. And then, then the narrator turns to you as he advocates pluralism and said, so you see, each of us has a valid encounter with God, but really God transcends all of this. But all of these perspectives are true. They're all experiencing part of God. The problem is, who is this narrator and how come he has an omniscient perspective and he knows exactly what the elephant is like and therefore he knows that everyone who is experiencing God is only experiencing part of him or, or in, a, in a flawed and limited way? I mean, how, how can you claim to have that perspective unless you really deny pluralism? You say that there is an ultimate perspective on God and you've got it. Right, So really, that being dogmatic about what God is like, 
And therefore, on that basis, they're saying each religious perspective only gets a small part of what I've got, which is really the full picture. Truth, as Plato said, is a matter of correspondence. One of the greatest sayings in history, I don't know, I could look it up in Greek, but in English it, it is from Plato. The essence of truth is to say of what is, that it is, and of what is not, that it is not. In other words, tell it like it is. Christianity makes a number of truth claims. We, we make a number of claims that we affirm to align with reality. Other religions do this too, but Christianity does it as well. Claims like, God created the world and God isn't part of the world. We are sinners. We are morally short before God. Jesus is the only one who provides a way of being reconciled to God. If you reject him, then you're lost in your sin and you will not receive eternal life. Through Christ, God provides a way to enjoy a relationship with him and eternal life through the resurrection of the dead, and so on. These are some of the claims that Christianity makes about reality. If Christianity is true, then to the extent that you deny these things, you are wrong. When people ask us, can't you all just get along? The answer is, yes, we're happy to get along with people and to respect people, whatever they might think. But respecting people is not the same as automatically respecting, much less accepting as equally valid, whatever they happen to believe. You see, the New Testament calls us to give a defense of what we believe and to do it with gentleness and respect for the other. If we are right, and if the things that we believe are as important as we think they are, then respect for others, even more than that, love for others, motivates us to share with them what we believe and why it matters, in the hope that they'll see it too and change what they believe. In other words, Voicing our disagreement with other points of view, when done for the right reasons, is not a mark of disrespect, but a mark of genuine concern for the good of others. It would be patronizing and frankly unloving if Christ is who we say he is, and the consequences of following him or not are what we say they are, if we just offered weak-brained platitudes like, well, this is our truth, you've got yours, and there's really no conflict here. There is. So that's number one. If Christianity is true, then alternative points of view are not. What about the second point? Well, the second point is God is knowable. Right? God can be known. Now, if there's no God, then of course you can't know God. Right? You can't know something that isn't real. At best, you can have an imaginary friend, and at worst, you might be delusional, hearing voices and having hallucinations. If God is the God of the philosophers and nothing more. You see, I think God is the God of the philosophers and more. But if that's all God is, you might think the God of deism, then God is real, but more than likely never even thinks about you, let alone wants you to know him. If the God of pantheistic Buddhism is real, or, or just some kind of pantheism where God is everything, then there's no distinction between the natural and the divine, and God is not a personal being at all, and certainly cannot be known. If God, Allah in Arabic, is the way that the Muslim faith depicts him, then he is unknowable and aloof. But if the God of the Christian faith is real, 
then God wants us not merely to serve him or to do his will, but to know him and be known by him as he is revealed to us most clearly in the person of Jesus. See, in Jesus, the writer of Colossians wrote, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. If you want to know the very character of God, then look to the person of Jesus of Nazareth. God is personal. God calls you to himself, and through the Holy Spirit, God is present, not just because he is transcendent and omnipresent, but because he, because he is intentionally near to you as a father is near his children. And so when you pray, you're doing more than engaging in meditation or self-transformation, although you are doing that, and it's good for you in that way as well. But God hears you. So that's the second important consequence of the truth of Christianity. What about the third one? The purpose of life. Sounds kind of big and cosmic. Well, it is. Can I assume that you've all heard of Aristotle? Aristotle had a lot to say about virtually everything. In fact, I read somewhere that he was one of the only people, maybe the only person of his time, to have studied and written about every major discipline that existed in his age including ethics, the question of what we should do, and metaphysics, the question of what things really are. Now, when Aristotle spoke about goodness, about a thing being good, what it meant for a thing to be good depended on what that thing was for. So what was its proper end is a way of talking about it. So a hammer is good if it's good at hammering things, because that's what a hammer is for. A house is good if it provides shelter, because that's what houses are for. But what about people? What does it mean to be a good person? What are people for? When I say people, I mean us, human beings. I talk about this on other occasions as well, such as when I talk about the relationship between God and morality, or one time when I spoke about the new atheists and morality. But I think it's really important, so I don't mind saying it now too. Aristotle spoke about there existing four different types of causes. And I won't go th through all the detail of these, but here's a list. There's, there are material causes, the formal cause, the efficient cause. But the fourth cause is the one that I'll say a bit about now. It's called the final cause. It's that for which a thing exists. Why is this thing what it is? And why is it at all? I'll give you an example. Right now, as I say these words, I'm looking at a painting of the University of Otago on my wall. It's the clock tower from the University of Otago. Lovely building. Why is that painting on the wall? Well, the material cause is how it got there. It's on the wall because some physical force acted on it. My wife actually picked it up and hung it on the wall. That's why it's there. Um, but the important thing here that I'm going to be talking about, the final cause, why is that painting on the wall? Well, because I like looking at it. It's there to decorate the room and to make me think of the place where I studied. You see? So why can mean a lot of different things. Here it means a formal cause. You know, what is the purpose of it being there? The end of its being there. It's telos in Greek, meaning end or goal. So what's the final cause of human beings? What is our telos, or proper end? 
when we're good examples of human beings, serving the goal of a human being, being what we are meant to be, what is that? Now this was a sensible question for Aristotle because he believed that we have a final cause. It was because he believed that we have a final cause, a purpose, that he could describe the, the good human being and the good life as human flourishing, that is filling out into all that we are meant to be. Now this way of thinking, inherited from Aristotle, has been highly influential, and in, especially in Christian and Catholic thought in particular. Flourishing is an objective state of affairs. If you were born with a second deformed face on the side of your head and a twisted limb, and you were blind, maybe, but you managed to get yourself psychologically into a place where you accepted and perhaps even liked these things, or unlikely though that seems to me, you still couldn't say, while retaining any of the original sense of the word, that these features were conducive to flourishing. Because that's not the way that the body should be. What about social or psychological outcomes rather than simply anatomical ones? Promoting happiness, contentedness, peace, the alleviation of suffering, encouragement, and so on. The stuff that pretty much everyone thinks is good. Are these cases of flourishing? Well, that depends, doesn't it? Does it fulfill some sort of objective purpose? Is that what we are actually, truly, really for? You see, what if I don't want other people to be happy and contented if they're not serving my interests? If I'm more powerful than them, why isn't their purpose to serve the subjective purposes that I choose? Now, if naturalism is true, the universe was not intended, and neither were we. If reality and all the forces involved therein have, to borrow a phrase that Richard Dawkins used of evolution, no mind's eye and no mind, then it's difficult to see how there could be any objective purpose to human existence. Things just turn out that we do exist. Yay! And we might be very happy about that. But we don't exist to do anything. We don't exist for anything. Richard Dawkins claims about DNA notwithstanding. He said that the reason we exist is to propagate DNA. No, not so. The reason we exist is because we were good at propagating DNA, otherwise we wouldn't. But you cannot, if you are a naturalist, talk about there being a proper telos or goal of human beings. Because the universe was not intended by anyone to be here, and neither were we. But what if Christianity is true? And, and if I were speaking to a live audience, not that you're dead, but you know what I mean, I would say, are there any Presbyterians in the house? And the first Presbyterian who raised his hand, I would say, what is the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Some of you may know it. What is the main purpose of humanity? Or in the older language, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is the main purpose of humanity is to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. So there is an answer. If God created us, then there is an intelligent and purposeful mind responsible for our existence. And so we have a purpose, a chief end, to go back to Aristotle's language, a final cause. There is an objective, a transcendent standpoint from which to measure our lives. Are we living a good life or not? 
is this the proper human way to think about and treat other people? Now, this means that if Christianity is true, then objective moral values exist. Now, I'm not giving the moral argument for God's existence just now, saying that the existence of moral values shows that God exists. That's another talk which I've given before. But if the Christian God exists, then objective moral values do exist. If Christianity is true, then we're here because there is a God who created the universe, who created us to be like God in some important sense, to love each other, to reflect God's desire for justice, and to know God, have a relationship with God, and to enjoy that relationship forever. We've got a reason for being. We are not aimless. And by seeking that purpose out, we can become more truly human. And that actually dovetails very nicely into the next point. Human significance. Why do we matter? Why should I think that you matter? And vice versa. Incidentally, I'm holding in my hand now, and I didn't plan to find this in the church that we're now attending. Um, it was just sitting there. It's kind of it's an evangelistic tract called 10 Reasons to Reconsider Old-Time Christianity where they basically say, here are some of the things that that Christianity has uh, uh, that commend itself to you. Reason number seven, I'll read here, says, it brings significance to life. And it goes on about how Christianity gives a basis for human value. And that's really true. Christianity, in spite of the caricatures you might hear from genuinely uninformed outsiders, I know some people laugh at the way I say caricature, the caricature, however you want to say it. In spite of the caricatures you might hear from genuinely uninformed outsiders or from people who have had painful experiences with a real but minority section of the church that don't practice Christ-like love, Christianity has always, always, from the very beginning, placed emphasis on loving the outsider those who have been made to feel unloved, those whom some members of society might naturally see as less valuable. Sometimes people misunderstand this, and sometimes people deliberately overlook this because they do not agree with the moral judgments that Christians make. But from the very sick to the elderly to the orphan, the widow to the hopelessly addicted to the shunned for whatever reason, and to the most vulnerable of all sometimes, those who have not even taken their first breath because they have not been born. Christianity, real Christianity, as William Wilberforce called it, Christianity that lives up to its name, loves and includes those at the fringes of society and of life. They may have nothing to offer us. It may cost us in time, effort, money, health, professional prospects, social status, and more. They may not provide social utility. In the coldest, harshest terms, they may be the weak ones in the herd, which the forces of natural selection would pick off. But Christianity cherishes them. If Christianity is true, they matter. Now remember, these are not arguments for the truth of Christianity. They're explanations of the implications of Christianity is true. If Christianity is true, then one of those implications is that God has a heart for the disenfranchised and the outcasts, and so should you. 
Remember the story of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, where Jesus says to the sheep, I was hungry, you fed me. I had no clothes, you clothed me. I was in prison, you visited me, and so on and so forth. It's a tragedy that so many people think of that story primarily because they think it teaches them about hell. When the real story is that God is calling you to love the least of these. Jesus said, as much as you did it for the least of these, you did it to me. And conversely, as much as you neglected, as much as you didn't do it for the least of these, then you didn't do it to me. If Christianity is true, then human beings have a quality that the Bible calls being made in God's image. Theologians and biblical scholars over the years have had discussions and disagreements about precisely what that boils down to. But one of the things that it boils down to is that human beings have significance as representatives of God in the world. This is so much the case that if you degrade, attack, or even worse, murder a human being, then that's an attack on God. That's why in the story of Noah, we've got God dealing with Noah and his family after the great flood. And he basically sets some ground rules to say, let's make sure stuff doesn't hit the fan. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. That's why it's wrong to oppress or mistreat people of other ethnicities. That's why racism is so wrong, for example. In spite of some of the terrible mistakes that some Christians have made over the years in relation to slavery, certainly not worse than anyone else, but that's not an excuse. Christians were the first people to successfully push for laws against slavery in Europe, vocally condemning Europe for tapping into the African slave trade. It's a real shame that Today, when people hear the word humanism, many of them think of secular humanism, which has at its core the rejection of a supernatural view of reality. That's not humanism. That's basically humanism plus something else, atheism, naturalism. Christianity is a humanist movement. It gives basic dignity to human beings who are made in God's image by a God who loves them and who calls them into a relationship with himself. That's why Christianity has a tradition of hospitals, orphanages, relief work, outreach to the poor, and so on. It's not because people think that in doing these things they'll get themselves to heaven. It's because Christianity is about what's really, truly good for human beings. So the second implication of Christianity, if it's true, is twofold. On the one hand, our lives have an inherent dignity. This isn't the second. Sorry, I lost count. This implication of Christianity is twofold. On the one hand, our lives have inherent dignity. And on the other hand, we have an obligation to treat people as though their lives have an inherent value. To love the outcast, to respect those who are different from ourselves, and to pursue justice for everyone. Okay, what about the next one? Eternal life. It had to come. The first thing that many people think of when they think of the supposed benefits of religion is that you get those benefits after you die. It's about going to heaven, living forever. That's what people think of first, sometimes, anyway. 
I've saved this one for the, towards the end of the discussion for the sake of pointing out that this is not the only implication of what we believe. But of course, it would be kind of silly to, to leave it out as though it were just a side issue. It's not a side issue. It's huge. I'm going to quote from Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, says the writer of Hebrews, since the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, he likewise shared in their humanity, so that through death he could destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and set free those who were held in slavery all their lives by their fear of death. Death. Death is is cold, it's horrible, it's, it seems so final. It separates us from the ones that we love forever, or so it seems, and in a span of time that feels, to me, to me at least, frighteningly short, it will bring us to an end. Our thoughts, our experiences, and from our perspective, the entire universe will disappear. It's not bad enough that we, if we live very long at all, will attend one funeral after another for good people that we knew. We'll see them laid out before us, cold, empty, gone. But it's worse. Let me quote from a well-known poem. Some people think it's called For Whom the Bell Tolls. It's not. It's called No Man is an Island. It goes as follows. I won't read the whole thing, but this is the part that everyone knows. No man is an island entire of itself. Each is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thine own or of thine friends were. Each man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. Therefore, send not to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Funerals really are the reminder that our time is coming. We're all on the same journey that all ends in the same place. At funerals, we see those who have reached it before us. But with every step we take, we're a step closer. Every breath we take is one fewer breath remaining. At the risk of sounding morbid and flippant at the same time, I'm reminded of a joke. <laughs> Who thinks of a joke when he's talking about death? I do! A young man used to go to weddings and be continually bothered by the fact that old ladies would come up to him and pinch his cheek and say, You're next, Sonny! He decided to dissuade such behavior by doing the same thing to them at funerals. <laughs> he was successful. Look, this is the big one. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And if, again, you were a live audience, I would put a slide up on the wall, a photo of, of an enormous cemetery that I visited. Tombstones everywhere. Headstones, anyway. I think it's healthy. You may think it's morbid. I think it's healthy every now and then to visit a cemetery, respectfully, 
Walk among the gravestones, read the names, see how long they lived. Look out across all of them. Ask yourselves, or ask somebody else, if there was any chance, and I mean any chance at all, that this didn't have to be the end, wouldn't you take it? Wouldn't it be worth it? You see, if Christianity is true, then this isn't the end. From beyond that impenetrable darkness on the other side of death, God, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, has come back to us and shown us that there is hope. The Apostle Paul contrasts two possibilities when he appeals to a popular catchphrase, saying, If the dead don't rise, then let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In cold, hard, rational terms, if death terminates our existence forever, which it would apart from the resurrection, Paul says, live it up while you can because you're about to fade away. But if Jesus has been raised from the dead and now promises that resurrection life to those who believe in him, then you could not ask for a greater contrast. How could this fail to matter? I mean, how could this how could this not be the most important thing in reality if it's true? And it's not just about us. It's not just about me. My own view of what eternal life means, has for a long time left me troubled by the way that some Christians, not all, but many Christians, especially evangelicals, talk about death. It's when we get taken out of the world and go to heaven, some people think. The rapture. You know, take us away from this world. Or even just when you die. You know, you, it becomes like a Disney cartoon, sitting on a cloud forever. Looking through many of the songs that have been sung in Christian churches over the years is worrying in this regard. We read about heaven's glory waiting for us and the earth's vain shadows fleeing away, never to be seen again. But more recently, thanks in part to the popularity of Tom Wright's writing, but also because this really is traditional and biblical Christianity that some of us have believed all along, the Christian attention has been called back to another implication of the Christian faith related to the hope of eternal life. The world really matters. Both the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth as well as the wider biblical teaching about eternal life points us away from traditional paintings of heaven surrounded by clouds and angels and firmly towards the resurrection of the dead and God restoring the world, creation. God actually cares about this world, and our own restoration through the resurrection of the dead is part of God's wider project of restoring everything. If Christianity is true, then not only does death not have the last say, not only is there hope beyond death, but if Christianity is true, then the world around us is something that God places value in, and so should we. There are versions of Christianity I know, that emphasize our escape from this world and its irrelevance, fleetingness, and perhaps even nastiness. But that's not the biblical faith. So there are actually some big, important reasons why Christianity matters. Now, you might think that Christianity is false. You might think that Christianity is true. Now, if it's false, then it doesn't matter. 
what it has to say about reality isn't important, except that it may occasionally stumble onto a random truth. You know, broken clocks are right twice a day and all that. But if it's true, then it matters more than anything else ever could. I wanted to make this point, and then I realized that C.S. Lewis had already made it like every blimmin' point in theology. Like C.S. Lewis and many others, we find ourselves faced with an outlook. And a person, namely Jesus, who might matter not at all, if none of this is true, or who might matter more than anything, if it is true. But you know what it can't be? It can't be the kind of thing that's just moderately important. And that is my answer to the question, so what? That's why I do what I do. Because if this stuff is true, then it really does matter. We just made it through 50. Where do you go from 50? (laughs) People who are older than 50 years old may be offended by that. Is there anything beyond 50? I actually don't know what's coming up next, but I can assure you that I will know before you do. Unless you contact me and you make a suggestion, because I'm always open to suggestions. At the blog, www.rightreason.org, there is a contact form. Click on the contact us, contact me. I forget what it says. I always talk in the plural, in the royal we. Contact me with your suggestions. I am always open to them. Whether or not they will become a reality, I don't know. But take heart in the fact that there is a possible world in which I take your advice on board. But please feel free to do that. If there's anything you'd like me to discuss, whether at the blog or here at the podcast, drop me a line. I would love to know. Also, you can follow us on Facebook. Follow me on Facebook. How pathetic. I make it sound like I've got friends. There is a link to the Facebook page also at the blog. So go on over to the blog, find the the link to the page, and I make some comments there about the blog that aren't in the blog, announcements and so on. So feel free to come and and, and check out the Facebook page. But I'm going to see you guys next time. And girls at episode 51. And until that happens, this is your host, the aging Glenn Peoples, signing off yet another episode of Shut up to my little friend!